for 30 plus years. I've seen every type of child grow up. Instead of giving me what I wanted, she gave me what I needed, which was truth. Don't let emotions win. Let truth win. Do your very best, and you should have a lot of fun while you do it. And the better you get at something, the more fun you're going to have at something. You moms and dads are wired with everything you need to be a parent to a great kid. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 112, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Today, my guest and friend, Dr. Joe McElhaney, will be joining us, and he has quite the resume. Dr. McElhaney is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist. He founded the Medical Institute for Sexual Health in 1992. He received his BS in chemistry from Texas Tech University and graduated from Baylor University School of Medicine. After completing both a pediatric and OBGYN residency, he joined the Air Force for two years acting as a general medical officer. While serving as a private practitioner, Dr. McElhaney was instrumental in introducing laparoscopy, gynecologic laser surgery, and microsurgery to the medical community in Texas. Dr. McElhaney also served on the board at St. David's Hospital in Texas, where he started the state's first women's health centers. He left private practice in 1995 to start the Medical Institute for Sexual Health and to continue to do research on the problems of sexually transmitted infections, non-marital pregnancy, and HIV-AIDS. Dr. McElhaney was appointed during President George W. Bush's administration to serve on the HIV-AIDS Advisory Council and the Advisory Committee to the Director of the Center for Disease Control. He's authored eight books, and sadly, Dr. McElhaney lost his wife, Marion, of nearly 58 years to dementia in 2018. He has three grown daughters and 10 grandchildren. As always, I'll share my points to ponder so you can start using them right away. And please, as a reminder, don't just download the episodes, click subscribe, because when you do that, you are joining my parenting revolution and every new episode will automatically show up in your subscribe list. I promise you won't regret it. We're not only on iTunes, but the PGK podcast is also available in the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. So no matter where you get your podcast, subscribe today so you won't miss a single episode. Parents, I have to tell you about a free webinar that I just created about how to be an effective and calm disciplinarian. I created it because this is something that I would have loved to have had when I was raising our four kids. If you're tired of yelling, nagging, repeating, and begging your kids to listen to you, you need to listen to my webinar. I'll cover the foundations of effective discipline and how to know if you're hurting or helping your relationship with your kids. I'll share the one thing that affects your discipline style more than anything else. I'll show you the three strategies for diffusing difficult parenting situations with your kids and the secret to getting your kids to behave without yelling or pushing them away. You can learn how to discipline consistently without blowing your fuse. You can get your kids to listen to you without yelling. And you can quit bad behaviors like yelling or nagging. You can nip the temper tantrums and 
be the calming force you want to be in your family. If you're interested, please head over to my website, meekerparenting.com today to register for this brand new webinar. They're limited spots, and I'm not sure how long we'll keep this training open for, so please go over, register. You're going to love it. I want you now to listen in on a conversation that I had with Dr. Joe McElhaney. You are going to learn a lot from this conversation. Well, Dr. McElhaney, thank you so much for joining me today on Parenting Great Kids. It really is such a a joy and an honor to have you on. You really are one of the smartest men I've ever known. Uh, Dr. Meeker, you're talking to <laughs> Joe McElhaney, not some smart doctor, but thank oh. you so very much. You're very kind. Well, you're you're very, very humble. Um, you're an obstetrician gynecologist, retired, and many years ago, I think it was in the late 90s, if I am uh, remember correctly, you and some other physicians began the Medical Institute for Sexual Health. Can you take us back to that time and what made you start that and why you thought it was so necessary? I I sure will, Meg. You know, we're hearing so much today about women being abused, but there are guys that really respect, highly respect women, and I'm one of those. Uh, For one thing, I had a wife, three daughters uh, uh, that I loved. Um, And uh, my patients were all women. I had five ladies in my office. But uh, at any rate, as my work was in fertility, and when we'd laparoscope these infertile ladies, we'd see their fallopian tubes just destroyed from infection, uh, from primarily chlamydia that they picked mm-hmm. up back in high school or college from their sexual behavior back then. And they had no clue that it hurt their f- fertility in the future when they got married and wanted to have children. Um, and yet when we went to our uh, high-tech national and international meetings about fertility care, Never was there any paper, not once, about prevention of these problems that everybody there knew were a result of the sexual involvement kids were having. Mm-hmm. So because of my, my – it just hurt my heart when I'd see these couples come in, and I couldn't say, you know where this came from. You just couldn't do that to an infertile couple whose mm-hmm. heart's broken by not having kids. So uh, in order to educate them, I did some writing. I did some books. Then I started the Medical Institute primarily as a scientific group to point this out um, through our science and then through education. So I thought if we had good science, then we're able to give this to people around the country. Uh, They could embed that information into their educational programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's how the medical institute started in 1992. I left my medical practice in 95 because my wife and I felt like we were just supposed to do that Mm -hmm. uh, full time. And so that really, in a really, in a way, I was at the peak of my medical practice, but we just could not stay there knowing that there was such a lack of information and so many young women particularly getting hurt by these problems. So you were aware, as your um, colleagues were, that OBGYNs knew that there was an epidemic of sexually transmitted infections and they knew the havoc it was wreaking on women. Why do you think other OBGYNs didn't speak out about it? I think there are a lot of reasons. One is that if they did bring it up uh, with their patient, let's take a doctor just seeing an individual girl who has mm-hmm. infection with chlamydia. Um, all he has to do is just say, you have chlamydia, we'll give you some antibiotics for that, it'll cure it. 
Mm. Uh, but if he says, you know, this came from your sexual involvement, uh, then he has to go into the whole discussion of uh, sexual behavior, uh, multiple sexual partners, which is the, the leading problem of people infected with these diseases. Uh, and it gets into a whole morass of information that he does not have time in his office mm -hmm. to talk about. At least he thinks he doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I would argue with him. I think a, a doctor should discuss it with every single patient. But I think it was primarily that the time was an issue. I think they didn't really quite know what to say. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the Medical Institute developed a trans-theoretical model of behavior change uh, based on the theory of trans-theoretical model change uh, to help train physicians and nurses and healthcare providers how to talk to people. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, most of the doctors in the country didn't study from that program. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, we could teach them how to do it. Uh, if their doctor's listening today, we, we are enlarging that program now. You know, I, I understand that because I work um, in a practice with eight doctors, and I have what I call the luxury of time to be able to sit down and talk to my teenagers because I see kids up to 20. And it does take a lot of time, mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of – when I start to tell kids or their and their parents what's really out there you know their jaw drops open mm -hmm. and then I have to sort of walk them through like okay but but what do we do now and I think so I think your, your time when we talk about why doctors don't do it it really is a time issue because I think that when people find out about this they tend to playing their doctors why didn't anybody tell me give us a little bit of a rundown because we know that the cdc says there's a huge epidemic of sexually transmitted infections among teens and young adults so can you talk to us about the growth of that from the 1970s until about now it's interesting you say the 1970s because i think most people would not say that Meg. but yeah you well know that in the 1970s uh, the epidemic was beginning to develop, but nobody really paid much attention to it. Mm -hmm. uh, early 1980s, HIV came along, and that alerted people to the fact that sexual activity could result in a really bad problem, HIV. We didn't know right away that it was caused by a virus, but uh, by the mid-80s, uh, by 18, I'm sorry, by 1985, we knew what it was. Uh, and that it was a result of sexual behavior. Well, uh, what people don't realize was about 1982, uh, Time Magazine, as its cover uh, article, had the new scarlet letter about herpes. Right. And it was about 1982, 3, 4, 5, that us physicians who saw women started seeing an epidemic of warts, of genital warts. And then it was about that time that we realized that essentially all cervical cancer is caused by HPV, human papillomavirus. Uh, there are 100 different strains, but several of those strains will actually cause cancer because they're persistent. Cancer of the penis, cancer of the vulva, cancer of the vagina, cancer of the cervix, which is the more common one. And today, because uh, young people are involved in oral sex so often, uh, we're seeing an epidemic of uh, cancers of the throat uh, and pharynx. Uh, in uh, people that have been involved in oral sex in the past, mm -hmm. an epidemic of that today. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, Meg, that really bothers me is that in the uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of attention of these diseases. Uh, but today, you almost hear nothing about nothing. it. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's a 
bigger epidemic today than there ever has been. There are 20 million new infections of STD, and probably at least 45% of that is among uh, young people below the age of 21. Mm. Uh, and most of it's among uh, young adults and, and kids in their teenage years. And it's a devastating epidemic. We're talking cancer of the throat and mouth. We're talking about cancer of the cervix. And we're talking about infertility. Now, one of the things that really bothers me, Meg, about this, too. See, don't get me started because <laughs> it just. I know I, what I'm doing. Know, All just, I have to do is toss you a question and there well, you go. I know. Well, uh, the problem that I see is that the low income people are the people that are suffering the most. The, the high-income people could afford to come into my office and be treated for infertility, but the low-income people couldn't afford to come in there or to other people that are caring for infertility patients. Uh, the low-income people are the ones that are suffering, and it just and they want babies just as much as anybody else does, and yet they're suffering because they can't get the care. Uh, this message that we're talking about today about sexual absence until marriage, and that is the answer. I, I hate to put it that bluntly, but that is the answer. The young people not have sexual involvement until they get married. Uh, that is the answer for these uh, low-income people, but also for the high-income people, for everyone. Mm -hmm. So how many sexually transmitted infections are out there? Are we talking 20, 30, 40 different types? You said with, with HPV, of course, there's um, about 100 and, and yes. there's about a dozen that cause uh, mm -hmm. um, cancers. But it's really, it's this, what, five or six or seven that are, are really um, bad HPV viruses, and those are the ones we're starting to immunize against. But how many other types of infections are there? There are over 20 uh, sexually transmitted diseases defined by the, by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, I'll just point out one of them that people probably don't, aren't even aware of, except for the advertisements on TV for hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. uh, there are 1.3 million people in the world being killed by liver cancer 90% of it's caused by hepatitis C, and that's a sexually transmitted disease, but also, of course, is transmitted by IV drug use. Uh, but it's a terrible problem across the world, and in this country also, mm -hmm. unless somebody can afford to get the medication to prevent, I'm sorry, to cure the hepatitis C that they get. But so many people with hepatitis C today don't even know it, and it's destroying their livers and causing liver cancer, too, in this country. There's 76,000 people in this country dying every year of sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV. Mm. 76,000. And, and the major, well, over 50% are concentrated among our young people, like you That's said, exactly under, right. under 20, which is really disturbing because they don't make up half of our population. So there's a disproportionate concentration among young people rather than old people. Older people. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, now, do you remember a number of years ago when uh, Dr. Julie Gerberding came out and talked about uh, prevention of cervical cancer in women? I think it was around 2000. Um, Frida and I testified at that congressional hearing. Sure. Um, but anyway, and she was talking about the ways to prevent cervical cancer. And there were two ways to prevent prevent cervical cancer that she came forward and said. Mm -hmm. 
And that was reduce the number of sexual partners to as few as possible, one, and delay the sexual debut as long as possible, which to me meant till you're married. So that sounds about really what you're saying here. And people may say, well, you know, why until marriage? Isn't that sort of a prudish thing to say? Or that's very unrealistic. But that really comes from the head of the CDC. Why don't we know about that? Why doesn't the country know about these issues? One of the problems um, is that the people that would advocate sex anywhere, anytime, with anyone, as often as you want to, have dominated our culture. And I have a hard time explaining why, but they have. Um, Perhaps it's the fact that, uh, what, Planned Parenthood, who is a primary uh, producer of materials and education uh, for young people in our culture today, uh, gets, what, $500 million from the federal government. Uh, and the groups around the, co- the country that are uh, advocating uh, supporting Planned Parenthood. And when I say Planned Parenthood, I'm using them as the group uh, because they have a coalition of Alan Guttmacher, SECUS, Advocates for Youth, the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unintended Pregnancy, which I think has changed their name during this past year, too, uh, and, and a number of other groups. And uh, they've actually... Uh, stolen the attention of our young people across the country. Let me give you an example of, of an egregious thing to me that just, just uh, I was just brought to attention. Uh, I was just learned about it on uh, The Voice and other primetime popular television programs. Now, there's an advertisement for PrEP. Now, that's that's a medication that a person can take if they're going to have dangerous sex, sex with somebody that might have HIV, and it works. And I don't have an argument with using PrEP. The argument I have, though, is that, is that on those advertisements on primetime TV, when our young, particularly our adolescent and, and young adult people are watching, this guy holds up a pill and says, I can have sex with one person, I can have sex with all the people I want to, and be safe. Now, yes, you can be safe from getting HIV, but you're not safe from chlamydia and gonorrhea and syphilis and herpes and HPV and all these other things that are life-devastating infections, Meg. Mm-hmm. But this is on primetime TV again and again and again. It's brainwashing kids. And yet that company that makes the drug is making money off of it. Right. We don't make money off of telling young people that the safest thing for them, the way to enter into adult life with the least baggage and the least problems is just don't have sex. Right. The message I want to get across, across this country, is for young people to say, oh, well, of course you wouldn't have sex till you get married. That's stupid because you get diseases and you get pregnant and you have problems, emotional problems, because the brain is molded by these experiences. We don't want the brain to be molded to think it's just a normal thing to go have sex with anybody anytime. <laughs> uh, and so um, I think it's time uh, for groups, uh, well-meaning groups around this country that care about young people to come together to change this culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need a new sexual revolution in this country, and I believe it's about to start happening. I agree, because what I'm finding is that, you know, and I've taken care of a whole generation of kids now, is that they're wising up, and they want to make different decisions than their parents did. And I think 
they know, they're much more savvy about what's going on. And one of the questions I get a lot about is the emotional aspect um, of sex. I think just to follow up on one thing you were saying, my belief is that the reason uh, nobody hears about this and the reason that we're promoting so much sexualization of our kids and sexual activity is money. It's just money. You know, sex sells to young kids. And we know that television is geared more towards you know, young teens, R-rated movies are, um, than anything else. And so I think once kids realize that and parents realize that I really don't want an industry that all they want to do is make money off my kids to exploit my kids, hopefully parents will stand up. Many parents will say, well, you know, I really don't need to worry about this because my child is getting sex ed in school. Will you talk to us about what sex ed is in the public schools, what's being taught, when it starts, and that so forth? Because I know you're an expert on that as well. Okay, let's just take what's going on right now today. Uh, the uh, I call them the Planned Parenthood Coalition uh, has been putting on uh, social media and also on their website information. They say for parents to teach sex ed in, this, in the home. Uh, if you go on that website, uh, they immediately, and you put in the word abstinence, they will say abstinence and outer course. People listening may not even understand what outer course is, mm-hmm. but outer course is where the genitals are against each other uh, nakedly uh, without having penetration. And when parenthood talks uh, or encourages parents to teach about sex ed and about sexual abstinence, which most parents won't, certainly for their 14, 15-year-old girls. Yes. They also teach the kids how to have outer course. Uh, and so this is the sort of thing that's going on right now about uh, during the COVID epidemic. But what they're doing in their materials prior to this, when they were doing it in schools, was exactly the same thing. They, they are encouraging young people uh, to have uh, sexual intercourse. And the reason is because, for one thing, you're, you're right about money, uh, but the other is because they do not believe that young people can be sexually abstinent uh, at all. They just don't believe it. And so that's why they push the condoms and contraceptives so much, and yet they never tell the truth. They talk about comprehensive sex ed programs. We have been looking at these programs for years, Megan. You have too. We have never seen one of those programs that actually tells the truth about how often condoms fail, how often birth control pills fail. Not once, ever. They don't, they don't tell the truth. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Dr. Joe McElhaney. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation. I'm glad you're talking about this because people here, parents will hear, well, there are two types of sex ed, comprehensive sex education and abstinence and people parents will say well obviously i want comprehensive um, sex ed because i want my kids to know everything um do we know if comprehensive sex ed reduces uh, sexual activity or does abstinence reduce sexual what do we know about how well each of these programs is working i'm so glad you asked that question uh, there's a researcher named Stanley that's been involved in this kind of research for many, many years, and he just recently completed a, a very in-depth research paper that he got published just recently, just within the past couple or three months, 
that shows that the comprehensive sex ed programs across the board, almost none of them have any positive impact. As a matter of fact, a non- number of them actually cause more problems than they, uh, than they, than they solve uh, with their programs. And he did show in the same study of, of, so of absence programs, if you want to use that word for them, but uh, of programs that uh, would encourage young people not to be involved sexually, that there is actually uh, a suggestion of, of their being successful in helping young people. There's a marked difference in the outcome, and we can certainly let people know about that paper if they'll call us at the Medical Institute, or I'm sure you can probably let them know where it is, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a program by Stan Weed, who's an excellent researcher. And anyone that's on a school board, Anyone that's in a, in, a, in a school district that has a concern about the sex ed programs, you got to copy that paper, and they need to bring that to their school board or uh, to those who are in charge of the sex education in their schools. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the teachers or whomever is teaching the sex ed in the schools is not I – don't, I don't mean to be demeaning or critical of the people teaching it, but a lot of times the curricula um, – is not medically sound and sure. it can be outdated mm-hmm. because it has to be, you know, pass all the uh, strict regulations of the state. And I and I don't know. I, I think the hearts of the teachers are right, but I just kind of wonder, you know, how much they know about the medical facts. And I think that's going to have a huge impact on what they teach and how they teach it. Don't you? Absolutely. And that's why I focus on the problem of contraceptives because in the, in the Comprehensive, so-called, I always call them so-called comprehensive sex ed programs, a big focus on contraceptives. But like I say, they never say that if condoms are not used consistently and correctly, it's as though they weren't used at all. And CDC actually says that. Mm -hmm. So they must be used consistently, which means every single time and correctly, which means they never can be turned inside out and used late or taken off early uh, to be effective. If that ever happens, then condoms are not effective at all. Mm-hmm. But even if they are used perfectly, they only reduce the risk of the common diseases like gonorrhea and syphilis and chlamydia and herpes and a little bit with HPV. But they only reduce the risk of that by 50%, even when they're used absolutely perfectly. Let me ask you, how many high school or college kids brush their teeth perfectly every day like they're supposed to yeah they're kids they don't do anything with that kind of regularity mm-hmm. or discipline. Mm-hmm. and how can we expect them in the heat of passion to always use their condoms or contraceptives appropriately uh, as a matter of fact there's a study that shows that cohabiting young people on birth con- the girl on birth control pills 20 percent are pregnant by the end of the first year because they just don't even use their birth control pills right even though they're right there in the bedside table and they're in a cohabiting relationship. And this is never pointed out. We need, we need parents to hear what we're saying today, Meg, because they want what's best for their kids. And these things limit their future. When the girl gets pregnant or she gets a disease uh, and moves on into college, off, well, actually, uh, particularly the lower-income people, when they get pregnant, they don't even get through high school a lot of times. And we want those young people to succeed uh, and come out of that low-income environment that they're in, don't we? Mm-hmm. We do, and it really isn't about trying to stifle kids or be controlling of kids or um, 
you know, to be kind of prudish. It really is for their physical, sexual, and emotional health. Yes. By far and away, the the best and healthiest thing for them to do. And I really don't think that a lot of parents appreciate how much healthier and how much better kids feel if they postpone. You and uh, Dr. Frieda Bush wrote a fabulous book called Hooked, where you yeah. talked about the neurophysiology um, that, it, that takes place during sexual activity. Can you talk to us just a little bit about Hooked? Oh, I'd love to. Um, this uh, book came out, the uh, uh, first version came out in 2009, and it came as a result of my uh, going to see Joe, Jay Deed, uh, at the NIH, uh, Jay Geed in the 90s started doing uh, MRIs on, on adolescents because it's a magnet. It can't hurt the brains. Before that, all we had were uh, CAT scans, CT scans that, that use radiation. But when he realized he could use these magnets to start studying adolescents' brains on a sequential basis year after year after year, he, he realized that the brain is growing and developing, but the part that develops last is the prefrontal cortex. And that's why you now hear so much about the fact that adolescents don't have fully mature judgment until the mid-20s because the prefrontal cortex is not totally developed. It's not even the, So their brains aren't completely there until mm-hmm. they get into the mid-20s. So that's one thing. The other is that we now know clearly that our experience molds our brain. Those folds in the brain that you see in those pictures are where things are stored. And when we experience something like a, a wonderful play or, or uh, see a, a football game uh, or hear beautiful music, those things mold our brain physically. It changes the, the brain cells and the way they're hooked up. And so almost any experience we have changes the brain. And one of the most powerful experiences we have is sex. When, when we are involved in sex, our, our skin-to-skin with people, it molds our brain to adjust to that experience. And if we, and it's a beautiful thing because if a couple gets married and then begins having sex, it molds their brain to see that as such a healthy and warm and wonderful thing. Uh, dopamine's produced, which makes them want to do sex again as a married couple. Uh, the oxytocin a woman produces then when she's skin-to-skin with her husband binds her to him to her to him and makes her trust him and then their sex results in babies well they are bonded bonded together by the oxytocin vasopressin and that way babies grow up in a family with the mother and a dad this is a beautiful mechanism i think personally that god designed for us to make our lives better and it's actually if if you do pay attention to what the bible says it's introduced in genesis as a very best way for human beings to, to live together, right? Mm-hmm. So we see this beautiful pattern, but it can be hurt. It can be destroyed. When young people start having multiple sexual partners, their brain molds to accept that as a normal thing. Uh, then they just do. The next time they're with another guy or girl, they have sex because that's the way their brains have been molded. Now, unmolding can happen because people do ultimately most people ultimately do get married, at least certainly they, they have up to this point in our society. Uh, and though they may have this tendency to, to seek out somebody else, what we say today is if you start seeing a fracture in your marriage, any fracture, go see a counselor, go see your pastor, your priest, your rabbi, 
go to a psychologist, go to somebody. Don't let that fracture develop if you have that past experience of having had other sexual partners because it can destroy your relationship with your husband or your wife. Absolutely. So let's say you have one man and one woman that have never had sex with anybody and they come together and they're bound tightly. Yeah. If you have, and I tell kids it's like taking two pieces of fresh tape and sticking them together. They're hard to tear apart. But if you have, um, you know, kids who've had multiple multiple partners, is it fair to say then with partner number 10, they can't really bind to that person? Or is that an overstatement? I think it's, I think it's more complicated than that. I think okay. that there probably is an issue there. Uh, but I think uh, the, the broader issue is that their brains have been molded to just see that as just a normal way to function. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they just sort of hop in the bed. And, and uh, then because of the molding to, to not accept that is the best way, then they then will go on with another sexual partner. By the way, uh, Meg, that's one of the reasons why when you were working with Judy Gerberding, she said delay the onset of sexual debut as late as possible because we have very clear studies that show the later a person starts having sex, the fewer sexual partners they have, the fewer sexual partners they have in their life, the less chance of having these diseases, including HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to mention one more thing. I don't know how much time we have, but I'd like to Good. be sure and mention the success sequence because so much of the focus of our work now is to emphasize that. It's not all we do, but it's such a powerful thing. Uh, there's an organization called the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. that's sort of a quasi-liberal group. Uh, but Ron Haskins, and is, whom I know personally, and Isabel Sawhill, who I sort of know, uh, developed this uh, study that showed that if young people will graduate from high school uh, and get a job, even a minimum wage job, then get married, and then have children in that order, that only 3% of them will end up in poverty ever. It's a dramatic thing. Uh, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia expanded on that. And actually, he uh, produced a brochure, uh, actually a very informative uh, booklet about this that I would highly recommend people get a hold of if they have some interest in this area. But if we just get people to understand that, Meg, they were, uh, Sawhill and, and Haskins were talking about the economic value, but you and I can say it helps them emotionally because we know studies clearly show that when guys or girls, either one, begin having sex back in high school or college and they're not married, they're much more likely to be depressed. There's a much higher instance of suicide attempts and suicide ideation and a much higher rate of suicide itself. Mm-hmm. And this kind of research actually has been getting stronger more recently, not weaker. Mm-hmm. We don't want young people to be depressed in college because when they're depressed, how do they finish their studies and how do they then get through college in a successful way and achieve later on? Mm-hmm. So this argument for teaching kids and young adults to uh not have sex except for with one person really isn't a religious argument. It really is a medically sound argument and also psychologically sound. You know, parents want their kids to be emotionally healthy, and yet they never think about talking about sexual activity as a big part of emotional health. And I think that parents really need to understand that because, um, 
you know, yeah, there are diseases and, and that's horrible. But in my experience, kids and parents will say, okay, talk to me for that about five minutes, but talk to me for about 25 minutes on the emotional impact of um, sexual activity among kids. What's the future hold for sexual activity and our youth? We've talked about this. We know that teaching kids to abstain until they're married is the best way to go medically. Do you think that we can change the tide in America? Uh, yes, <clears throat> uh, for two reasons. One is because uh, I think it's gotten so bad that uh, people are finally saying enough is enough. Even parents, even parents that perhaps would not even emphasize sexual absence in, in marriage, are saying this is crazy. Uh, and I think that advertisement I mentioned a while ago about prep, uh, where the guy just says, I can have sex with one or three or whoever. I don't think any parent really thinks that's a healthy thing for kids. So first, I think that we have slidden toward Gamara, uh, like Robert Bork titled his book years ago. Uh, we are a culture that has really slipped deeply into Gamara, into mm-hmm. the pits. Uh, second, I think because of that, that people now are, are going to waken up uh, to uh, what we're saying here, that there is value, not just from disease, but value in relationships. Connectivity, our connecting to another person, is one of the key aspects of being a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think people are beginning to realize that. And perhaps this COVID virus thing where we're having to be separated from each other or uh, for people like me, that my wife died two years ago, so I'm a single guy now, are uh, families that are having to stay together just in their home are realizing there's something really valuable here without us going out for soccer practice and football practice and, and dance classes and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this could even be part of this motivation that people have for uh, improving their connectivity and the most important and valuable connection is that between a husband and wife. I believe that within five years, if groups will come together, and actually we do now have a group of people we're beginning to work with across the country uh, with this message, that as we get this message out, that literally in five years, like I said a while ago, girls will say, well, of course you don't have sex before you get married because it's harmful in every way, and guys will say the same thing. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that for a large part of the, the, the population of America that will get that message out. I think 20% of people may hate that kind of message. I think 20% of people would love our saying this. I think the big 60% in the middle are saying, well, we just don't quite know what to do. And I think we can give them guidance to what is the healthiest thing for them and their children. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because I've started to see the, the tide change <clears throat> as well, because kids and parents say enough is enough. We, we know that sitting down and watching television and seeing sex everywhere and that, that it kind of makes them feel ill. At least it makes them feel ill for their kids and mm-hmm. the kids are wising up. And I just wanted to say on behalf of teenagers, teenagers will abstain from sex, but you have to give them a 
good reason to. Mm-hmm. You know, parents and, and, and uh, teachers assume kids are going to be sexually active. That's not true because studies show that only half are, less than half. But right. so we need to teach parents, okay, it's not that hard, at least teaching girls, you know, who are the gatekeepers say, look, it's not that hard. Um, so I feel very encouraged. I feel more encouraged uh, about where we're going than I did even 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do. We, yeah, we have we have advertisements on television, primetime, sponsored by the state, on why teenagers should be abstinent, and they use that word. Wow, that never really? would have happened ten years ago. No, you're right. No, never would have happened. So I think that your message, where parents and teachers and physicians need to come together, we can really tip the scales and drive down infections, drive down depression, drive down anxiety, drive down this whole culture of hooking up, which isn't working in any way, shape, or form for, for young people. Um, I, I, I really, really believe that we can change the tide. So if anybody out there is interested in finding out more of the work that um, the Medical Institute for Sexual Health is doing, they're interested in looking at studies, or they're look, just interested in finding out the medical facts, how can, they, where should they go? www.medinstitute, just med, not medical, but www.medinstitute.org, and we would love for them to contact us. We'd love for them to go to our website uh, and, and be involved with us in any way they would want to. Joe, this is fabulous. As I will end the show saying the same thing I did at the beginning, you're really one of the smartest uh, guys I've ever known and the hardest working. So thank you so much for coming on. You're so far above me, Meg, but thank you very much for the compliment. And thank you for for this. I I just love getting this message out. And I know you do, too, because I know you so well. We've known each other a long time. It's such a privilege to work with you, Meg. Thank you. Thank you. Now on to my points to ponder. One, talk to your kids about sex. Many parents ask, when is it time to have the talk? Well, here's my rule of thumb. When your kids begin to hear about sex in school or from older siblings, it's time. Some kids here at age eight, others at age 11. The best way to find out what your child is hearing is to ask, I know that kids are or will talk about things that moms and dads do in private, like kissing. Have you heard anyone talk about these things? Then watch your child's expression. You'll be able to tell by his response whether he has or hasn't. If he hasn't, let it go for a while. Don't have the sex talk then. But if he has, you need to tell him that you want to set aside some time to have a very special talk with you. Second, Review the sex ed program in your child's school. Most parents don't do this because they don't think about it. There is a variation from state to state, but you need to know exactly what your child will be taught in a sex ed program. Some schools far too prematurely talk to young kids, kindergartners, about sex, and this is far too much for them. If you find something in the program you disagree with, talk to other parents and put pressure on the school to pull the information. Remember, as Dr. McElhaney said, research shows that giving young kids explicit information about sex changes their behavior. 
Third, don't be timid. When it comes to objecting to sexualization of our kids, many parents just stay quiet. They don't want to look like they're out of touch with cultural norms. Don't do this. This is absolutely not true. And even if it were, who cares? Your job and mine is to help your child be as healthy as possible, emotionally and physically. And this involves helping them stay sexually healthy. If you don't teach your kids about the sexualization going on around them and about what healthy sex is, who will? Parents, I'm not going to answer questions today because I'm going to do something new. Every other week, I'm going to post a podcast with just me answering questions and talking about a specific topic. My first podcast like this I'm going to talk about your parenting preload, your parenting preload. You need to listen to it because I'll bet it's something you've never heard of. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Joe McElhaney, for joining me on the show today. To find out more about Dr. McElhaney, go to medinstitute.org. That's medinstitute.org. Let's recap my points to ponder. One, talk to your kids about sex, even though it's very embarrassing. Two, review the sex ed program in your child's school. Three, don't be timid. And parents, don't forget, go to meekerparenting.com and sign up for my free webinar on discipline, the discipline playbook, how to be an effective and calm disciplinarian. So until next time, parents, Always remember that great kids are raised, not born. Hey, this is Bobby, producer of Meg Meeker's Parenting Great Kids podcast. Thanks for listening. And because of your dedication to raising great kids, Dr. Meg's Parenting Revolution has grown to over 3 million downloads. Head on over to Facebook and Twitter and follow at Meg Meeker MD and check out what's new at MegMeeker.com. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter to stay updated and get information about giveaways. Don't forget to share the podcast with other parents. Subscribe so you won't miss anything. And leave us a review so we know how we're doing.